This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Smoothies are delicious. Welcome to The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I am Sarah Cliff, and here with me is literally nobody. I am sitting in a radio studio by myself, which is possibly the saddest weed scenario you can think of. Matt is on vacation, Ezra is also out, and while I could sit here, I'm sure I could talk for an hour, as Weeds listeners know, I might have some thoughts on the space-time continuum. We're going to do something a little bit different today. We have this great interview that my co-host Ezra did for his other podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, which some of you might listen to. Highly recommend subscribing. He did an interview with this writer and health policy wonk I've admired for so long, Atul Gawande. You might be familiar with his work. He writes for The New Yorker. He is a surgeon. He is, as you know, Ezra mentions in this interview, just a frustratingly good writer. If you are somewhere else who writes about healthcare, he has written some of the most influential influential journalism that's happened on healthcare. You might be familiar with his work about McAllen, Texas, the city that had exceptionally high healthcare costs that President Obama cited was really key to the healthcare debate. Um, so Ezra did this interview that I got to listen to with Atul, and it's just so great. You know, you do get a chance to hear Atul talk about healthcare, an update on some of the projects he's working on, some really interesting research results that, you know, are just starting to come out um, of his work. One of the things he's really interested in studying right now is end-of-life care and improving that. And in the podcast, you'll hear more about the work he has been doing there. But one of the things I liked most listening to this interview was kind of hearing about how he got into writing and what some of his inspirations have been for writing. There's this part at the very end of the podcast, so you know, stick with it. I, I think you'll really enjoy it, where he talks about kind of the role that role models have played in his life, how he became confident as someone who trained as a surgeon that that he could be a writer, that, you know, this wasn't something he had initially thought he would go into. So as much as, you know, I really enjoy hearing a tool talk about health policy, one of the things that's so unique about this interview is you can kind of learn more about how he got into his profession, which I thought was just fascinating. So take a listen, enjoy the interview, um, send us your thoughts at weeds at fox.com, and we will see you next week. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> and you? Uh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You, you'd asked me this a second ago off before we were recording, but now I'm going to turn it back on you. What is the most interesting thing you've been doing lately? Ah, that is a, such a hard one because there's so many interesting things going on. I think, the, <laughs> <laughs> I think the most interesting thing that I've been doing of late is been we've been running a trial, a preface. I had my book in the last couple of years called Being Mortal. And that was a book where I was tackling what felt like I was doing a poor job of taking care of people who it, I was not going to be able to fix their problems. I was not going to be able to make it go away. The book outlined and walked my way through an investigation of what seemed like where things went wrong and what people like me in medicine should be doing differently what people like me as a family member should be doing differently. And then the result is that in my laboratory work, so I, I work in a place called, launched a place called Ariadne Labs, which is a center for health system innovation. We run large-scale experiments trying to make things happen. So the most interesting thing going on is that we got the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute to participate in a trial 
of implementing the kinds of ideas that I was talking about in Being Mortal. So we did a randomized trial. We got 80% of the clinicians to participate in this trial, and we're just now getting the results. Half of them we trained in recognizing a few core things, that people have goals and priorities in their life besides merely surviving. Those goals and priorities are individual and they change over time. The most important way that you can find out what people's goals and priorities are for their life and and what they want to uh, have you serve when you're providing clinical care, the most important way to, to find those goals out is to ask people. And we don't ask. So we trained clinicians in how to use a few critical questions that that you ask along the way in the course of care, not just giving people a bunch of facts and figures about their prognosis and their options and what the risks and benefits are, and then turning them saying, what do you want? It's asking them, what's your understanding of where you are with your health at this time? What are your fears and worries for the future? What are your goals if time is short? What are you willing to go through and not willing to go through for the sake of more time? What's the minimum quality of life you would find acceptable? So now we're three years into this trial. We've, we've actually completed enrollment and have followed patients long enough to see them, the first group who had terminal conditions, come all the way to the end of their life. And what we just have started putting out, we presented actually at an oncology meeting, was that the group that saw physicians who were trained in this approach had half the level of depression along the way and half the level of moderate to severe anxiety during the course of their care. Those clinicians had conversations with them much more frequently. In fact, 92% of the clinicians had these conversations and They occurred not just in the last few days or weeks of life. They occurred on average five months before people died. The result was less suffering, as seen by less depression and less anxiety. So far, we're seeing equal survival to the others, so they're not dying sooner. And then we're following this long enough to see how much of of an effect it has on resources as well. Ultimately, whether people, how much unwanted care they got. So it's been this incredibly interesting thing and the most interesting aspect was in the last week we just trained teams that came from everywhere from Hong Kong to California to eastern Massachusetts in implementing it in about uh, 40 systems across the country. So it's become really cool. So I have a, a million questions for you based on this actually mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm really glad we got we got here so quickly. So one reason I've been excited to have you on the show, like honestly, since the day we launched it, is that I admire you enormously, um, really, really enormously. And and one of the reasons I, I admire you is that you seem to have integrated a set of skills in your life in a way that I can't think of anyone else really having done. You work as a surgeon, and in that work, you see things that are wrong or you learn things that are encouraging. You are, as somebody who writes about healthcare, you are an infuriatingly good writer about healthcare, and you take the things that your work in, in actual clinical settings alerts you to and then create beautiful essays and books and reports on them. And then you take the work you do in those essays, books, and reports trying to find an answer to the question that you asked or 
to the project that you were trying to analyze and you turn them into large scale experiments that actually change the way people practice medicine. And it's incredible to me because so few people do it the way you've managed to fit three very different jobs together. And I'd love to hear you reflect a bit on that. When did you begin to see these things as not separate, but as actually all one pursuit? Or am I off base? Do you not see them that way? I do see them as part of one thing, but it took a long time for me to figure out how it all fit together. I started out, I came out of college and you know, I'm a, I'm a son of two Indian doctors. So what are you supposed to become? <laughs> You're going to be, you know, another Indian doctor. And I was very resistant to that. That's not who I wanted to be. I worked in politics for a while. Actually, way back in college, I worked for the Gary Hart campaign until it ended in school. Wait, you worked for Gary Hart? I worked as a, you know, like an envelope stuffer um, in, the, in, in California when I was at Stanford, you know, for Gary Hart. And then he is also the first politician I ever worked for. Is that right? <laughs> yep. I, when he almost ran in 2004, I was an intern for the campaign that never quite got off the ground. And, and I'm uh, not to interrupt here, but the day he came out to Northern California, which is where I was, and I was signed up with, you know, this sort of not quite campaign that he was exploring. And I took him around to a bunch of events and we got stuck in traffic and I was driving a stick shift in San Francisco, which I hadn't done. So I kept burning it out on the hills. It was just the most nightmare of a day. The next day, I, sh- I swear, the next day he announced he is not running for president. And I've right. always wondered if he like came and had this clusterfuck of a day with me and was like, I am too old for this. This is how low you can go. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> well, that's so funny. Know, I didn't know you'd work for Gary Hart. Yeah. And that was a campaign that end- ended in ignominy um, or sure. ignominy, however I pronounce it. Um, I don't think that word can be, different, can be pronounced. There you go. Only can be read on a page. Then in 88, I worked for Al Gore's campaign, and that ended, no one remembers this now, when he admitted that he'd smoked pot in college, and that ended his campaign, which is why later when Clinton ran, he claimed that he didn't inhale because he saw what happened to Al Gore in 1988. So, Isn't it um, insane we now have a president who has admitted to doing cocaine? Right. <laughs> like that, it's not that long ago that I didn't inhale was, was part of it. And, and, and Obama yeah. wrote about doing cocaine. Right. No, that's right. Yeah. So you have 92. I, I worked for Clinton and ended up being his healthcare and social policy advisor. I'd worked on the Hill for a couple of years. I eventually ended up finding that I wasn't very good at many things I tried. I tried rock music. That didn't work very well. I tried being a philosopher. I got a master's in politics and philosophy and had found out that I had a hard time understanding the questions, let alone offering original answers. I worked in politics. I ultimately worked on the Clinton campaign, learned a ton. Health reform failed. I learned that I didn't love working for having my future controlled by the fates of politicians. And so I decided to go back and do what my parents always knew I would do and go to medical school. But along the way, I was trying to figure out how I feed this part of me that cared about policy and cared about how we make a difference in people's lives at large scale while I was working at understanding how you make a difference in people's lives at very, very small scale, one-on-one. Can I stop you for a minute? Yeah. Because we just jumped over your political period pretty quickly. 
that was a very tumultuous time in healthcare policy. I mean, you were there during the 1994 health reform bill. You worked for Jim Cooper for a while, who was a, a, a big player in that period yeah. and is one of the smartest. Another moderate Southern Democrat. What did you learn working in politics? What did you come to believe about the political system that has informed your work since? Well, one of the things I was attracted to were people like Clinton, Gore, and then this congressman named Jim Cooper, who had one of the most conservative districts in Tennessee and would win it with 65% of the vote, even though he was a, a, you know, a moderate Democrat. What I was interested in were these people who had taken their Ivy League educations, you know, that gone to their, the, all of them had gone to Harvard, Yale, or the like, and then gone back home and had to sell people on ideas that they, they weren't re that receptive for necessarily. And I wanted to know how they did that. And I never found out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was completely baffling to me. I worked for Al Gore and he was this person who loved the wonkery. Like, you know, he had me work, I'm on the campaign and he had, they had me assigned to figuring out desalination policy for the desalination of water because he knew that in 20 years we're going to have a water shortage. So how are we going to do desalination? But like you're on a campaign, like what, what is this thing I'm working on and, and, and are you going to announce about it? Or Jim Cooper, who ran in this district, became one of the youngest congressmen at the age of 27. He had the highest concentration of NRA members. Tobacco was one of the top industries in his district. And he would go out and say, you know what? Smoking does cause cancer, and you guys who are farming, you got to think about that this may not be your future in the long run. And, you know, he didn't come out and he wasn't pro-gun control, but he managed to, to walk this line where he was not saying any of the stupid stuff that, that the National Rifle Association said and would have arguments with his constituents, and he'd still win 65% of the vote. He was incredibly dark and cynical and not very telegenic, and he'd still win. And then he ran for Senate in 94 against Fred Thompson. It was the, that was the Gingrich revolution happening at that time. And at a state level, that didn't translate. He got beat there and it took a while for him to come back. And now he represents Nashville. But I was totally fascinated by, you know, they were smart. They were able to talk through the policy. They were, they cared about the goals that I cared about and they wanted to win people over to adopting their ideas and they would, they would win them, you know? And Clinton had this incredible charisma. Gore had his own mystique. They each had their own way of doing it. It just matched their personalities. And there was nothing I was going to be able to copy or do that was going to make me any more effective at doing that. So I kind of had to figure out my own way and my own thing. There was, you know, lots of things about how policy works and how ugly and grim it can be. And I'd say my biggest lesson in the White House was came from, and, and working at HHS, came from recognizing that so I went from running the Roosevelt Room briefings for the president to not even being invited anymore, to being back, to being invited again, to being elbowed out again. And I didn't learn how to have sharp elbows, how to fight and jockey for position, how to play the bureaucrats game. You had people who totally agreed with you, who would leak something to the press so that you would get kicked out of a meeting. And that game... I didn't know how to play, certainly in my 20s, and I didn't like it. I kind of hated it. I just thought, boy, if you're about the results and you do the right thing, 
this is how you win people over. And, you know, it isn't. You have to, you also have to figure out how to have a story to tell and you have to be able to connect the dots for people in ways that don't get you kicked out of the room and keep you in the conversation. And and that took a long time to learn. Were you studying these politicians because you, during that period, had an interest in running for office yourself? I don't know that I could imagine imagine running for office. I'm, I came from a little town in Ohio, a rural town, where I sort of felt like I barely, I didn't even fit in. And the idea that I would get a whole population of people to vote for me when I couldn't even get a date in high school, it was hard for me to imagine. Like, I ran three years running to be in the student council, and I lost, you know? So that idea that I would become someone who would really seek popular office and win people over that way, it just... I was totally fascinated by it. I want to understand how those people worked. I want to understand how you made a difference and how policy was made. And I want to understand how I could fit into it, but I had no idea. And that that's what took a long time to come. So you decide that politics isn't for you. Then what? Well, yes, working for politicians wasn't for me. Politics still was. I mean, I still loved policy and mm-hmm. I still loved how we move ideas. And I went back to medical school because I felt like I needed to I needed to have my own experience in the world and have my own kind of relevance, my own skill set you couldn't take away. And medicine turned out to be fantastic. First of all, having grown up in a family of two doctors and a little town, it just there was a familiarity to it. But the second part was that you're deeply inside people's lives and you see the whole complexity of how all of these forces in the world from economics to to social forces in people's lives to science and technology all come together and then you know I ended up in an operating room and finding oh my god I have to try to do this because it seemed insane you were opening people up promising you're going to make them better and things are complicated and they were wrong and you have imperfect information and yet come out the other end and these these folks were 97% plus we were making better. And so it introduced this whole level of complexity and understanding that I didn't know how to pull it all together, but I decided, you know what, I, I uh, my plan was I would do something like internal medicine for two or three years and then go back to policy and work in, in a think tank or in some way that would influence policy. And then I loved, fell in love with surgery, which is a big problem because that's an eight-year training program. And um, like, I don't know how I was going to get back to policies, but I just did it. I felt like I'd regret it if I didn't try. And then there are all these random things that happened. You know, a friend of mine, a guy named Jacob Weisberg, helped start Slate Magazine. It's 1996. It's the Netscape Navigator days. Nobody's reading anything on the internet hardly and they couldn't get real journalists to sign up to write for slate and so you know jake would ask his friends i'd never written anything for the public before and i said well all right i'll try it so i'm i'm in the middle of my residency and and i'd write an article every couple of weeks on something that i found interesting usually it was a policy thing i mean one of my one of my first articles was about then governor george w bush in texas who'd signed into law that prisoners could be released early for pedophilia if they agreed to be physically or chemically castrated. And my question was, does that work? <laughs> and Did it? Yeah, yeah, it does work. It's a significant <laughs> drop in recidivism. And so then, you know, what do you make of that? And I could dig in on interesting puzzles. And then gradually, it took a long time, 
all the pieces starting together, I began writing about things I was seeing every day and what they made me think of that seems wrong in the system at large or the ways that we're hurting people and trying to make sense of it. And then writing became the way to do that. Surgery let me into that real world. And I could see, you know, medicine's almost 20% of our economy. Like there isn't anything that doesn't happen across the course of a human lifespan that isn't reflected in some way in everything that we, that we do in medicine. And so it became this vantage point on thinking about the country and the human experience and, and even the world to some extent. And then the doer in me, the part that is the surgeon, the part that wanted to be in policy, said I couldn't just be an observer writing about what's happening. I wanted to develop some of those ideas, test them, drive them. And that suddenly became a whole enterprise, which I never expected around creating these, these large-scale experiments. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. Let's go back to the writing you're doing at Slate. Tell me how you would dig in. What was your process? So you see something that catches your eye. You see that George W. Bush is chemically castrating prisoners and giving them early release as a reward. What do you do next with that? Well, so, I mean, first of all, I've ever since that time kept a running list in various places. Now it's on my phone of things that I find confusing or interesting, usually both, right? They're interesting because they're confusing. And I'll want to dig into it. You know, like for the longest time I had on my list, you know, why do we itch? <laughs> and <laughs> then they'll just sit there until I see pieces that start to come together. Now that one sort of naturally presented itself because there was this moment, there was this political thing, and I could just dig in. And digging in meant going into the library and pulling out all the studies that are there on it. But then also trying to call up people who actually do this stuff. Like, so you get a prisoner and you're supposed to chemically castrate them. Like, what is that like? <laughs> like, what, what, what's the conversation? How is that supposed to go? And I didn't know that I wanted to dig that far into it. In the beginning, I had, they're very wonky without the human texture. One of the great things about the editors I've had is they kept saying, you know, show me the video. I want to see what this looks like. And I kept looking for how do I how do I let you see what this is actually like in the real world? And so I'd call around and and then, you know, later as I got 
a budget. A couple of years later, I got to write for The New Yorker and they would let me travel and, and actually go visit and see things. And so, you know, I'd take a weekend off and head somewhere. And that became part of the process as well. I, I find I'm doing research easily two-thirds or three-quarters of the time, and then distilling it down, and then the writing is, is actually the, the more painful part. I love the, re- I love the discovery. I love the research. I like the editing process, too. I, I like after I've gotten the first draft. I find the first draft very painful. But then improving it and changing it and making it a little bit more alive and making it sound like I'm talking more, I like those parts. And, and so I didn't know that for a long time. But it, I gradually God, I am the discovered exact, those things. I am the exact opposite of you as a writer. You, you can get the draft I, down. First draft is fine for me. After I write a first draft, I never want to look at it ever again. I can't get the I first don't want to know down. it's out there. I don't, been working, I don't want it to exist. I've been working on a piece now for over nine months, which I can't tell you about. It's not that it's anyone's going to, you know, like <laughs> scoop it. None of, my, none of my ideas, no one ever takes them. But at any rate, The New Yorker would kill me. But getting the first draft down, like my editor is ready to wring my throat because I'm just, I find it so hard to get that first draft down because I feel like the ideas are missing or it doesn't hang together right. And, and, and I should just get it down. And then, and, and I say that every time I can't get it all down. Is the issue that you have written whatever it is, 6,000, 8,000 words, and you just don't love them or that you can't write the words? It's not the words and it's not the 6,000, 8,000. It's that I don't have the idea straight and when I write it down, it looks stupid and I have the editor is on. My editor in my head is on and I know it doesn't make sense and it's one of those things. It's like as I'm writing, I'm thinking and so I should just keep writing but instead I notice what I've written. I write longhand in order to try to stop this process because when I type it out, I immediately can edit it. You know, you can delete, delete, delete and then go write again. So oh, interesting. I, I, I start out by writing longhand because at least it forces me to keep going and then I, then I type it in. But I find it, it takes me a long time to get it all down. And I remember when you were writing at the Washington Post, I was incredibly envious of you because you could pour out the words and they seemed so coherent. And I would take four hours to write 500 words. I could spend a whole day on a couple sentences because I don't like how they sound. See, that is the thing I don't do. And it's why you are a much better writer than I am. My my wife is like this too, uh, Annie. She writes for for New York Magazine and she is a beautiful sentence level writer. I read her pieces much like I read yours and I'm like stopped short. (laughs) But she will craft and craft and craft on paragraphs and I just... I think the best you can say about me as a writer is I'm clear and I'm just like, I go through it. And then I just, I think it comes from being trained as a blogger actually. For years, I was just writing endlessly tons of things and there was no expectation that they were going to be perfect. There was no editor, nobody really cared. And I just got used to writing in a way where all I want, all I was really doing was getting the idea out there. My colleague, Matt Iglesias, he's also, oh, he's also very much like that. And now we have all these writers who we edit. And it's so interesting to see if you come up through editing, through a world where you're used to turning it in and somebody gives you feedback, I think it just feels very different than if it was just you out there. Because it just, for me, somehow, I do not have the thing that, is, that says, this sentence doesn't sound as good as it can sound. Why don't you go make it sound better? If, like, if that sentence more or less gets my idea across, well, screw it. That's good enough. I think that's important, though, because... I think you got to do that and then go back. You know, what I wish I could make myself do is just get it down good enough 
it would be so much faster for me if I just got it down. If I go give a talk on the subject, just off the cuff, or I'm, I'm at a dinner party, and someone says, what you working on? And I tell them what it is. I do it so much better than when I start writing. And, <laughs> and, and I should just get that down, like, and then go back and edit it. But somehow my brain switches into that mode of judging what I'm saying, and it's crappy. So, you know, it's it, funny. It, it when I'm clunky. When I'm very deep in a piece, and I am right now, we were talking before we began rolling, but I'm working on this big Hillary Clinton profile, which, God willing, will be out by the time this podcast is. So you should go <laughs> find it on box.com, a wonderful website. But I find that when I'm deep in a piece, I begin talking it while I write it. I'll be in my room alone and I'll notice that I'm actually saying the words that I'm writing down, trying them out, trying to hear their rhythm. I don't do it on shorter pieces, but I do do it when things get longer. And and I think it is related to what you were saying. Somehow I can achieve a clarity when I'm trying to say something off the cuff that when you're deep in a piece with a complex structure, it can be very hard to see through. The worst thing that will happen to me when I'm writing something long is I will go back and look at what I've just written and right. I'll get lost. You just sort of get lost in the in all the other choices you could make. And when you talk, you are almost by nature making pretty automatic decisions about your structure. And so you can't move in those other directions. And I find it's a really good way to break through a part that's tricky. I just start talking and writing down what I say. One of my favorite interviews was with Joan Didion, who wrote both fiction and nonfiction. And she said that writing nonfiction is like sculpture. You're taking a piece of clay and carving the clay of facts into, into something. You have choices there, but the, um, you have choice about how to make it go. But she said, fiction is like dreaming. And to some extent, talking is like that, right? You're simply, you aren't putting structure on it. It's just coming out of you. And most nonfiction isn't like that at all. It's much more about taking this lump of facts and making all kinds of choices with it. And what we're describing is, boy, we wish it was much more like that dream state of, of fiction. What's your favorite piece you've ever written? That's a hard one. I, I, um, I don't have a favorite. I have many favorites, but I, the one that immediately jumped to mind was a piece I did on solitary confinement called Hellhole, where I was trying to figure out, is solitary confinement torture? And I tried to understand the ways in which we saw putting hostages in solitary confinement, like Terry Anderson, who had to spend years in solitary confinement in Beirut, the kidnapped journalist. We saw that readily as torture. And then how was being a prisoner in our solitary confinement system where we even today have reached a point where, you know, there were hundreds of people in solitary confinement under Reagan. Today, there are tens of thousands of people, you know, more than ever in our history in solitary confinement. We've actually started reducing that now. But that piece, I'd, I'd put it out, I'd concluded it, it really was torture and knit all kinds of components together, interviewed a murderer. I even remember he'd made a gun out of a car antenna in the days when they had fat car antennas in the in the 60s or early maybe his 50s and i used the word that he barreled the bullet that was how he he put the bullet into the barrel i'd made up a word and i was proud of that and um 
I was proud of it on so many different levels. I was proud of the story and the reporting and the getting close to people's experiences, the words and the images I'd been able to use, and the sense that I was taking an issue that I felt was very hidden and bringing it alive. But I was frustrated that it, it didn't have that much impact. That year was the year I'd written my piece on McAllen, Texas, and the county that was then the highest cost of care for Medicare in the country. And my piece, Letting Go, which would become my most recent book, Being Mortal, and then this one on solitary confinement. I was proud of all of them, but this one about solitary confinement had almost no impact at the time. It had to have its impact. It took some years before people started to cite it in judicial opinions or talk about it in public debate. And so it's the one I thought of because I felt like it all came together in various ways, but also thought of because it was uh, kind of relatively unnoticed compared to the other ones. I was talking to somebody just the other day about what happens, what will change if Hillary Clinton is elected and Democrats replace Antonin Scalia with a liberal. And one of the things they brought up as a possibility was that solitary confinement would be declared cruel and unusual. You know, so what's happened since is, first of all, solitary confinement doesn't neatly conform to red-blue states. I mean, you had 10% of prisoners in New York State have been in solitary confinement. You had, you know, massively high levels in Mississippi and in Maine. And it was conservatives in Maine and in Mississippi who cut the rates of solitary confinement by the highest levels across the country, you know, by more than 70%. Dick Durbin, the Democrat, started leading hearings not long after the piece. They didn't go any, very far in the beginning. And then later they picked up steam because he got cooperation across the aisle and they've successfully brought down solitary confinement in federal prisons by 30%. You know, the evidence is that it does not increase the crime rate. It does not increase the, the violence rate in prisons. If anything, it, it uh, improves those rates while being, and at the same time, it's utterly inhumane to people. You need social interaction in order to just be a human being. So the sense of that potentially tipping, it probably does happen faster if there's a liberal justice appointee, but it's partly because I think you will be able to pick up votes across across the political spectrum. So there has been this theme in a lot of your work, not not in the solitary confinement piece um, or in the itching piece, both of which I love, but in in better in the checklist manifesto, which is that human beings often do very basic things more poorly than they realize they do. And and something that I have taken from a lot of your writing that I thought's really interesting is it's so much writing about the healthcare system and about healthcare in general is about the margin, is about the newest and most impressive thing we're doing, the brand new cancer therapy, the brand new surgical technique, the brand new medication. And you've been very focused, I think, at different times in healthcare and elsewhere on the improvements we can get, not from tremendous innovations, but through being able to apply what we already know more uniformly, more rigorously, more effectively. I'm curious where that outlook came from, because it's an interesting outlook. And and in medicine, it's a little bit culturally unusual. It's mistrustful, I think, of individual brilliance and very focused on the ways in which human beings need structures to be 
and simple heuristics to be effective. First of all, I'm psyched you picked up on this because to me, failure has been the thing I've been most interested in over time, the, the intersection between failure and suffering. I think it comes from many different places, but I remember reading an essay when I was in um, doing philosophy and not doing very well at it, but um, it was on the nature of human fallibility. It was by two philosophers, Alistair McIntyre and Samuel Gorovitz. And what they pointed out was that there are two core reasons why human beings fail at anything they set out to do. One reason is because of ignorance. We just don't know all the laws that apply to the physical universe, and we don't have a complete state description of the universe that those laws apply to. And therefore, we have ignorance about what happens, and the way you overcome ignorance is research and and discovery. But the second reason we fail is what they called ineptitude, meaning the knowledge exists and, and an individual or a group of individuals fail to apply that knowledge correctly. And what's really interesting to me about kind of living in our time and living in our generation is that that is a remarkable change. The remarkable change of living now is that ineptitude is as much or a bigger force in our lives than ignorance. Most of human history, we were ignorant about our diseases that affected us. You know, why do our human bodies go wrong and what can we do about it? What can we do about the world we live in, the environment? What can we do about many, many things? And we still have huge areas of ignorance, whether we don't know how to take care of Alzheimer's disease or metastatic cancers or some fundamental aspects of why the economy behaves the way it behaves. But we know a ton. I mean, in healthcare, we have now enumerated more than 60,000 ways our 13 organ systems can go wrong. And for those 60,000 diseases and conditions, we have now created more than 6,000 drugs, more than 4,000 medical and surgical procedures. We have an uncounted number, easily in the thousands of ways, that we can prevent advancement of diseases or even occurrence of some diseases. And our job is to deploy that capability town by town to every person alive. Now, in your life, the reason we may have suffering in your life is more likely be, to be because of ineptitude or inability to deliver on existing knowledge than it is to be because of ignorance. And that is incredibly interesting to me. I want to understand how we solve those problems. I want to understand why we even have that feeling. We apply a word like ineptitude as if it's a moral failure that things can go wrong. And it is actually not that often it's about an individual's malfeasance. It's about the, the ways in which we're all set up for failure under the conditions of complexity. Like delivering on all of that capability is the most ambitious thing that human beings have ever attempted. And the ACA is just one instance of trying to learn how to deliver on it. The fact that, you know, it, it's eating up 20% of our economy. Like th this is all learning how to deliver on this incredible volume of discovering capability. And we're about to have another whole lump of incredible discovery, whether it's cancer care and other fields from genomics. So I find it incredibly interesting, curious, but also incredibly important. Like this is the challenge of our generation and the next couple generations is how we have systems that make it possible to realize 
the benefits of all of this discovery we've had and are continuing to have. And, and we're nowhere close to capturing that. I love what you said a moment ago about ineptitude. And I, and I want to focus on it for a minute because I think it's really important. The idea that when we look at people who maybe didn't do something that we knew could have been done and we look at them as failing and we have this idea that competence, and I think this is particularly true in, in, in healthcare, but it's true elsewhere too, that politics. competence is politics for sure. Competence is not making mistakes. Competence is getting everything right as opposed to competence is knowing that you will make mistakes and knowing that you won't get everything right and setting up a context that will help reduce the possibility of error, but also help deal with the aftermath of error. I mean, you wrote a piece on hand washing that I've always thought a lot about because I had the smug technocratic wisdom that doctors do not wash their hands nearly often enough. And that this leads to incredibly unnecessary amounts of death and infection and suffering. And you, then you wrote somewhere in that essay about what we actually meant when we talked about washing hands. And it wasn't what I thought that, you know, it needed to be 25 seconds. The water really needed to be hot. You had to get under your nails. You needed to do this every basically eight minutes because you'd be going in and out of room so often. And all of a sudden it became completely clear why people don't wash their hands. And it was one of these helpful sort of insights for me because in a complex world, we are, I think, as a species, getting beyond the point where we can ask that kind of competence out of ourselves. And the question is, what kinds of systems can we set up to help us manage complexity and to help make sure that this body of knowledge that is far beyond what any of us can actually access and, and keep in our own minds is somehow being applied at the right times and to the right people. But that's a very different view of what human success means. It's, it's in some ways a much more, it's not pessimistic, but it is a whole lot less self-impressed. Yeah. And I am drawn to these really mundane things like hand washing. You know, it's 2 million people who pick up infections in hospitals. And you have 99,000 people a year who die from those infections. And most of them would be prevented if everybody washed their hands correctly. <laughs> and the fact that we can't and haven't figured out how to solve that. Now, you know, first of all, seeing the ways in which hand washing becomes incredibly onerous if, if you have to manage, uh, you're a nurse and you have to manage eight patients and you have to wash your hands for 30 seconds between every patient and, oh, their call bell's going off and they're calling me for the other room and wait, I got to drop everything here, take the gloves off, wash hands, put them on. But now we've added Purell. Okay, that's great. So now you have a little hand sanitizer that cuts the time. Um, but now we got to keep the Purell dispensers full. And what if the dispenser's not full? And then, and then you add all those components along the way. And then you add in that to deliver on all the care for these people. Like my mom was in the, in the hospital getting a knee replacement. And she was there for three days. I counted 66 people, different people who came in the room during her stay and then her rehab and executed on the care or made a decision about her care. You know, every one of them putting their hands on her. So that incredible complexity of all these people. It just, it was, it was, so here's your point about competence that really rung with me, was not only does it require us understanding and being a little forgiving for how, how difficult it is to be competent, it also is to recognize that there's, there's almost, there's no mistake too dumb for us to make. We make all the mistakes. We make them all the time. And 
that there's enormous gains that come from just reducing some of these mistakes enough to knock it down 10% or 15%. And you don't get 100% elimination of the mistakes. We aspire to that, but you don't. And then the third part is then entering a culture that can be forgiving about mistakes. If we expect perfection from our politicians, we expect them to take no chances, take no risk, and make incredibly complex things happen in the world without there being the whole gotcha game of politics is kind of infuriating on both sides that we can always find the places where things go wrong. And the real measure is, are things getting better? And what do we mean by better? And is it along our values and what we're trying to achieve? We want to be unforgiving about seeing whether things are getting better or not, and yet forgiving about the individual uh, failures along the way. Uh, just recognize we're like latent failures. We're failures waiting to happen all the time. And that's where our ability to be successful, ability to reduce suffering in life comes from. How has this outlook affected your non-medical life? Uh, so obviously you've written the Checklist Manifesto about the importance of creating just very simple checklists before you do all kinds of tasks to make sure that you're not making, as you put it, the very dumb mistakes. What has diving into this research, what has immersing yourself in this view of humanity done to change the way you act or make decisions outside the operating room context? Well, what's funny is it comes out of the operating room context in certain ways. I mean, what drew me in when I went into an operating room for the first time was that here were these people that were just ordinary human beings. They told bad jokes. They, you know, had a weak chin. They, they weren't all, all that smart. And yet they could take action, knowing that they had imperfect skills, knowing they had uncertain information, and they could act, and that people would turn out to nonetheless be better for it. They'd be better better off more than 97% of the time. You know, that was incredible to me. And I am somebody who is not a risk taker. My favorite New Yorker cartoon was the one that said, uh, that had a, a cemetery headstone that said, he kept his options open. And that was me, <laughs> and is me to some extent. <laughs> you know, I have a hard time deciding what restaurant to go to. And here was this place in an operating room where you had people who could make decisions, live with the consequences. If things go wrong, take responsibility for it, learn from it, move on, and make it better the next time. And I was incredibly drawn to that because it, it, it wasn't me. This isn't who I naturally am. You know, I talked about agonizing over two sentences I could spend the whole day agonizing over that. You know, you, you want this person operating on you? I, I had to learn how to be that person and be decisive and then live with the consequences that come from that. And I think in, it spills over into my real world, into my non-medical world. I guess the other world's real. <laughs> <laughs> it spills over in the sense that I emerged from surgical training as somebody who is impatient for decisions. And I even... With my kids, you know, it's like they bring me a problem and I immediately want to move to, okay, how are we going to solve it? What are we going to do? When a lot of times what I have to do is just listen and, and not try to solve it. So what I'm now trying to learn to do, which I'm not very good at, is now not have overreacted to all the things I learned by being impatient for solutions and impatient for how are we going to make this better? What are we going to do? 
and, and just in like in life with my wife and my kids and my friends, it's just like, can I just listen for a minute and slow down and and hear it? You know, if my kids ever listen to this, they, they will say, no, you haven't learned to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you some questions about healthcare policy. There's been research that I think has been pretty interesting in the last couple of years. It's mostly been about Medicaid suggesting that health insurance may do a lot less to actually improve people's health outcomes than we thought. That it appears to help you get access to medical care. It does act as insurance. But it isn't clear that the care we're getting is doing all that much. So you talked about these particular operations where you're making 97% of people better. But has this strain of research led you to update your or change your views on the worth of the medical care that we get in aggregate? Well, it, it, it sort of reinforced my views. So Kate Baker out of the... Oh, it's great when things do that. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> you always manage any facts. It's just going to reinforce my views. Um, <laughs> the Kate Baker, who's the economist who did a ton of this work out of Oregon, and Oregon was this amazing sort of natural randomized experiment because they ran out of money and gave Medicaid coverage away in a lottery. And for two years, the lottery winners were the only ones to have that coverage. And so they could compare the two who got coverage and didn't. And you're exactly right. They got more doctor's visits. Kate took it even deeper than that. Not just, you got more doctor's visits, you had more operations, you had more, more emergency room visits, more hospital stays. You could begin to see what they got more of they got more mental health care. They got more diabetes checks. They actually got more medication for blood pressure, more medication for their diabetes. But only certain things got better. Their diabetes didn't get better. Their high blood pressure didn't get better. Their mental health did get better. The mental health might have gotten better primarily because of the significant level of financial stress that had been relieved. I mean, the biggest change people experienced was a drop in their financial vulnerability. And that may have been the reason why they had such a substantial drop in depression. Otherwise, over the course of two years, you know, there's modest to little effect of, of getting more access to care in terms of survival or in terms of the control of specific chronic illnesses like diabetes and high blood pressure. So what that said to me is reinforced what I feel like I was recognizing in all of the work we've been doing, which is the system, the healthcare system massively underperforms. We already knew by that point that for people with high blood pressure, you know, 60% do not have their blood pressure under control, even when they've been seeing people in the medical system. We know that um, 40% of people with coronary artery disease receive incomplete and inappropriate care. We know that for mental health conditions that can be upwards of 80% are receiving incomplete and in, inappropriate care. So being able to deliver on making these kinds of systems work is the reason why I started doing all of this work in what's become Ariadne Labs. You know, my last book before being mortal, you mentioned Checklist Manifesto, was recognizing that in that in surgery, more than half of the deaths and major complications that occurred were from failure to deliver on existing knowledge about how to do better. And we designed a checklist approach. You know, basically it's like a pre-flight checklist for, for even the expert surgeon on the team that went through and ma made sure that you had good communications across the team about what the goals of the operation are. Did you have all the equipment you need? Have you taken into consideration the medical issues of the patient? Is there anything that has to be adjusted before you start in? Did you 
have the blood in the room? Does everybody in the room know each other by name? Do you have the antibiotics given? And doing that, we lowered the death rate 47% in eight cities. We now have had studies and partnerships in Scotland, rolled it out with a careful implementation program so to confirm people actually were using it, that dropped the death rate 26%. In Canada, they rolled it out with just a mandate in law, no implementation support program, no coaching at the front lines, no checks to see if people are actually using the system, and they had no reduction in death. So what it feels like is we're on the cusp of being able to, it's only been the last maybe decade or so that we've started to demonstrate areas where you really can make sure that at large scale you're doing the right things. But, you know, we haven't done that. We haven't figured out how to do that just around high blood pressure and diabetes yet, you know, two of the biggest killers in the country. So you have this partisan debate over this research. The Republicans would, or at least some Republicans, would attack and say, therefore, coverage, health insurance, you don't even need it anyway. It doesn't do any good. And you had Democrats, some Democrats and liberals saying, no, 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 the, the research is wrong. It can't be wrong. When the truth is you do need the coverage and the system is incredibly wasteful and disorganized. And we're entering that space where you have to solve those problems of ineptitude. And, and, and we're, we're starting to offer some solutions. We way underinvest in these kind, this kinds of research. The vast majority of the National Institutes of Health budget is on how do I discover the next thing and virtually none of it on how do we make sure you deliver, you know how to deliver the science of how do you scale delivery of the things we've discovered. You just spoke a lot in there about the system, about scaling delivery. Something that, that strikes me is I think that we have trouble talking in this conversation about how difficult it can actually be to help people. I mean, one of the things that I have really been struck by when I go out and report with, you know, really innovative care delivery groups is how much of the problem is, yeah, we do actually know what kind of medication will bring your blood pressure down, but it's very hard to get you to take that medication. I remember, you know, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but you did this incredible article a number of years back called The Hot Spotter, which is about Jeffrey Brenner out in New Jersey, who was doing recognize that the healthcare costs in his city in Camden were very concentrated on an individual block and was doing this amazing work to try to, to try to address it. He called me later on and turned me on to work being done in Pennsylvania in a Medicare pilot program where people were trying to do incredibly aggressive care to the absolute sickest and most expensive patients and they were about to get shut down. And I went out and looked at that program and it was really striking to me how much of really the problem was not do we have treatments for somebody, for the problem somebody with dementia might have, but how do we get the person with dementia when they're at home with their wife who maybe is hard of hearing and, you know, is, is having her own troubles? How do we get them to, to take that medication? And something that I just think within this, and it, it speaks to what you were talking about earlier about human beings and the mistakes that we make it is really hard, even when we have good treatments, even when we have good science, even when we have a functioning delivery system, to get people to adhere to, to these regimens. And then we go back and we look at it and we say, well, the whole thing isn't working. Maybe we shouldn't invest in any of it. Well, this is where I feel like we're missing our great chance at investment in an innovation that actually can close those gaps. Because there's patterns to why people don't take those medications. CVS has actually funded a bunch of research 
that has looked at why people don't take their medications. And it's the majority of people who don't consistently take their medications. Taking your medications means do you take it 80% of the time? And the majority of people don't. There are six different patterns, a couple examples. One pattern is people who right away they take it and then it trails off. There's another pattern, which is they never take it. There's another pattern, which is that they take it and it gradually increases in how much adherence they have. And when you classify into these different groups, you find out you need very different kinds of strategies. The person who took it for a while and then didn't take it is often an indication that they have side effects that they don't like, and then they come off. And so those are people you want to probe and find out, well, maybe let's make it switch in the medication so that they're on the right thing. For the person who never got on in the first place, it may be that they have such social chaos in their home and in their life that they can't consistently jump through the hoops like getting the right insurance coverage and getting it approved or picking it up from the pharmacy, and it may be age-related. So things like there's a a company called PillPack that now mails you the individual pills in daily amounts and puts it right in your mail, gets it to your home. You don't have to go to the pharmacy. And lo and behold, the people who are often in that poor group are uh, highly disabled people, people who you know, don't have all the systems in place to be able to get get it down to the pharmacy and go get the stuff. And then there's a third part, which is, hey, what if you designed a blood pressure medication that you only need to take once a month and it keeps you under good control? The ability to innovate in these ways that close these gaps, make it easier to deal and manage for yourself, that's the critical thing, you know. You have all these dropouts, and, you, and, we, and we blame it on, you know, why don't people adhere to this regimen? In cancer care, for example, you have delays in care where someone's diagnosed with breast cancer, and they don't get to care. And, and you have some people, a significant chunk, who never get to care for three months or six months with a known cancer that's, that's going to spread. And you say, well, what's their adherence problem? Well, you, lo and behold, they have to get into a system where you have to send them, you know, we have this crazy system where in order to have permission to look at your records, we won't even see you unless I get a form from you that you've authorized me to go look at your records, get that biopsy report that you had and all that kind of stuff. And so we don't have proper electronic systems, so we don't allow you to email me the form. You know, 95% of people have email, but you have to be organized to get this form sign it, get it down to the post office, put a stamp on it or fax it to me, fax machine. Who's, who's got a fax machine? Like doctors are the last people in the world who still use fax machines. And no surprise, people drop out. And it's many of the people who are like, you know, working their butts off, don't have a natural way to, to get to a post office during working hours, you know, and that you're not allowed to have an appointment unless you have that form filled out. It's crazy. And it's science also. Like this is, this is knowable stuff. We can do the research. There's some places that have solved these problems and we can create solutions and scale them. And we don't, and we, and we're not even curious about it. And that's the, that's the killer. That's, that's the thing that can sometimes really bum me out. So there's the Obamacare people know how to talk about the Obamacare of trying to give people health insurance, fights over subsidies, the individual mandate. Then there's the Obamacare that in, in ways, some, some of them direct, some of them indirect, some of them interesting, some of them maybe not that interesting is trying to change the way the healthcare system works. And, and I think you've written on this more eloquently and, and consistently than most. But how do you think that Obamacare is going? How do you think the effort to actually create a change in how healthcare is paid for, is delivered, and is even thought about in this country is going? Well, it's a giant experiment, an experiment in shifting us from a system that 
pays doctors and hospitals for the quantity of care, regardless of the outcome it gets, and trying to shift them towards actually being responsible for delivering that care with results that are demonstrably better and to do it more and more efficiently with with less and less use of our resources. And as an experiment, in the early days, it's pretty disappointing. We have some modest successes, many ideas like, you know, we're going to require that, that hospitals open up their pricing. Or you see seeding of startups that have made sure that people have their prices known to them. And people don't shift where they go for a different colonoscopy or a different MRI based on, on those uh, price signals. We have other approaches that say, let's create a accountable care organization. We're going to have a budget to the doctors and the hospitals, and, and they're going to, to drive costs down. And lo and behold, we have a lot of good examples where it's actually happening. But in the group as a whole, it's been a really modest reduction. And so on one level, you say, well, this experiment isn't working. But when you think of it as being more of a discovery process, it's like trying to find a cure for cancer, there's been an enormous amount of learning about what's working, what's not working, and advancement of the tools that get us there. And we're seeing some signs of when you give data and incentives to the doctors themselves, when they don't own the hospital, you know, when they aren't going to get pressure and get kicked off the staff at the hospital if they don't keep keep the emergency room busy, they can dramatically reduce what's happening. And of all places, we're seeing it in McAllen, Texas, you know, which had been the most expensive place in the country. And you're seeing these doctors groups that are signing up for the provisions under Obamacare so that now a third of the primary care patients are under one of these systems. And they've had dramatic reductions in costs of more than four and $5,000. Now, they started at a very high level, so there was some low-hanging fruit, but there are starting to be these demonstrations. Now, the long story short is it's not unlike education where you have some spectacular charter schools and spectacular examples of public school districts that have had success, uh, but the average charter school is not doing any better than a public sector school, and neither one are doing very well. And we're in a similar boat in healthcare. Overall, the costs in healthcare have been dampened. And I don't know how much of it is because of these reforms that are going on and how much because of the dampened economy we'll learn as the economy picks up. Uh, so far, the costs have continued to stay flat and, and gone down. The expectations about how much Medicare would cost and how much the ACA would cost have been cut by almost 10% off of what projections had been. And those are really significant victories. They're not dramatic paradigm shifts like the kind that that we know can happen. We easily have 30% of the system that is ineffective or wasteful care or bureaucracy around that care. And we're in the discovery process now. The best part is that we've had at least now a few years, I forget how many, six, seven years since ACA, six years, where the health systems and the doctors and the hospitals, they know that the future is not going to look like the past that we're not in a fee-for-service world that is just going to pay you for piecework. That's not going to be the system of the future. And so you have the people at the front line who are actually participating in figuring out how to innovate and how to be part of the solution. And that is, you know, six years on, a good direction, long way to go. So I was talking recently with someone who is smart and is thoughtful and, and learned on these things. And he was arguing very earnestly to me that, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 
we would see aging as a disease to be cured, that we would have realized we were looking at it all wrong, that the cascade of different things we think about in terms of aging had somewhat similar causes, and that we would be we would have figured out a way to treat it. Are there ways we look at particular conditions or diseases or natural processes that you think as we become more knowledgeable, as genomics moves forward, as artificial intelligence moves forward, are there things that you think will look in 50 years or 100 years just really barbaric or blinkered to our descendants? Well, I'm less clear on what is going to come out of genomics and what's going to come out of these discovery processes. I have my skepticism because as complex as the social systems are that we're describing, the physiologic and biological systems we have are just extraordinarily complex in my field, which is cancer surgery. We have been just now going through a period of several years of incorporating understanding what the genes are that come from a biopsy of your tumor and how we need to alter your care based on the gene that's there. Well, now, in the last couple of years, we're beginning to recognize that the genes are extremely different even within that tumor. There's incredible heterogeneity. People are doing cell-level transcriptome sequencing, which means transcribing what genes are actually turned on in, in, in the different cells, and they're incredibly variable. And you realize it's a whole ecosystem within that tumor that's driving whatever's happening. Now, take that at the whole human being level, and aging is kind of the highest level output of an incredibly complicated system that has millions, billions of things going on all at once. And, you know, tipping the scale so that you're able to generate less aging, less dying off of cells or more regeneration, but without creating more cancers and without creating more mutation. If I have to venture a prediction, I'd say in the next 50 years, it is very likely we'll make incremental improvements in survival, but I'm doubtful that we'll make this paradigm shift. Now, you can't imagine the unimaginable. So I think it's perfectly logical for there to be investments in, and companies that, that believe they can crack that, crack that nut. But I think the, the artificial intelligence story is going to be one that is likely to have major paradigm shifts because the ways in which we can have artificial intelligence begin to augment our human capability of capturing and controlling the ways that the complexity of our of our human systems work and be able to influence them you know the big mistake i think has been thinking of artificial intelligence as either the human or the machine and the machine's going to beat the human when deep mind created AlphaGo, that system that played Go against Lee Sedol, the Korean champion. The most fascinating thing to me was, yes, the machine beat Lee Sedol in game one, game two, game three. Then Lee Sedol won game four and came very close to beating the machine at game five. And what you saw across the course of the five games was that the machine was teaching Lee Sedol how to be a quantum level better Go player. And he was reaching the point where he was learning how to beat the machine. And that capacity, that way in which we end up in symbiosis with many of these capabilities, that they augment the reach of our minds, the reach of our ability to anticipate and influence complex systems in, in society, all the various ways that go on, I think it's going to be, it's going to feel much more like a paradigm shift over the next 
uh, 50 years. Let me ask you a couple non-healthcare questions and then I will let you get back to saving lives. Um, what is the <laughs> or, best or, advice? Or the concert I'm going to tonight. <laughs> what are you going to? I'm going to see Weezer tonight. Weezer, they're still touring? They're, they're, you know, so Rivers Cuomo has come out with two recent albums that are both great, that are kind of like the old Weezers come back and they're not, not just touring, they're back to filling arenas again. Really? Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. I would love to see Weezer live. So I, I've been an incredible fan of Weezer for a long time and totally fascinated by Rivers Cuomo. But the last thing I ever expected was when he read Checklist Manifesto. And when he read the Checklist Manifesto, they'd had a couple albums that hadn't done that great. And two albums ago, he decided to make a checklist out of the Checklist Manifesto based on how his brain was thinking and worked when he was writing his original albums back in the 90s and made bizarrely his, his songwriting checklist and then began following it. And the two albums ago, that's what he that's what he designed. He did all the songs by following the checklist out of there. And so when he came to Boston, he called me up and said, would you come out? And it, you know, it was like one of the most incredible, fantastic things. And then I love meeting people from completely other worlds. And so we've ended up connecting and corresponding and sharing notes and, and his checklist for songwriting has only gotten even more insane. And then, then the latest album has, has been that way. And, and, uh, you know, hit number three on the billboard charts and, and it's just incredibly fantastic to think, you know, I, I had that rock and roll dream and never was going to happen when I was in college. And this is <laughs> as close as I possibly can get to it. Can you share anything that is on his songwriting checklist that I can't even think about what would be on that? Well, he actually ended up giving an interview about it on a, on a podcast called Song Exploder. It's just a fantastic thing to listen to is how he did a song called uh, Summer Lane and Drunk Dory. But the checklist would have things like he would listen to old songs and and capture guitar riffs and to go back to doing that again. And so, you know, part one was capture these guitar riffs from from old songs. So one of the things he would do when he would write solos, guitar solos, would be that he would he would fall into a rut playing guitar solos. So his checklist was do the guitar solos, working them out by singing them, by scatting with his own voice, and then pitching it up a couple of octaves on the on the production system. And then when he wanted to figure out how he's going to sing the melodies, that he would work out on piano or guitar and go backwards and work it out that way. You know, and there were there were, you know it's like it has it has an insane number of steps his checklist for songwriting and 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 checks along the way and ways he tests it out with various people gets feedback. It isn't quite a formula because it has its own kind of internal insanity, but um, it's also his particular brain and, and knowing how creativity works for his brain. Do you have a checklist for writing? I don't really. I have a process and, and I don't have a hard time remembering it or I don't miss the steps in it. Whereas when I'm giving talks, I do have a kind of set of checks for myself that I have to remind myself to memorize. The, I still haven't completely abandoned notes. So I'll have a couple of notes in front of me that are a little outline of my talk. But I have a checklist to remember when I, before I go on stage that I should remember what the first couple key bullet points are so that I'm not looking at the piece of paper for the, for the beginning, you know, when I walk out on stage. Like, I know what I'm going to say. I have a couple options for the ways I like to end the stories. And so I 
turn to them as my little checkpoints, which I easily forget when I get lazy um, and think that I don't have to think. I can just go talk. What are you, I know you you are much more up on music than I am. So so the Rivers Cuomo uh, thing actually brings up a question I, I'd like to ask you. What are like the three best albums you've heard in the last five years? Wow. That is a really hard one. Alt-J, an awesome okay. wave. That would definitely be up there. The I'm trying to do these off the top of my head, and it's hard because I mix so much going back and forth between one that I just got completely obsessed with is uh, Go Go Penguin. They're a Manchester of all things jazz. They're really more like electronic music. They don't play electronics. They're like acoustic musicians who play electronic music. And I know that's hard to, that sounds odd to explain, but they're unbelievably talented. They must be in their early 20s. Uh, and I've gone to see them live, sort of blew me away. But that might be a little out there to recommend. And then virtually anything by Radiohead, including the most recent album, would be up there. But I'm sure I'm missing all kinds of stuff that, that I wish after I get off of this, I would say, oh man, that, this, how could, I, how could I have forgotten to say that? This is good. I, I don't want to brag, but I've heard of Radiohead, but, but the other two I've not heard of. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out. I got into sort of weird house music in recent years, which I'm not entirely proud of, but I have completely lost touch with anything that has a guitar in it. So I'm just continuously listening to the Bon Iver self-titled album over and over and over again. You know what? I have to, I, so I have to remember this one. You mentioning house music. So my daughter, who's now 17, is getting to live the rock and roll life that I never got to live. And she released her first single with a French DJ named Cozy. So if you Google... Wait, really? <laughs> yes. So if you Google Hunter Gawande and on SoundCloud, she's got a song that's been released called Lullaby with... Uh, this French house DJ named Cozy. It's already like it's only been out a couple of weeks. It's already past twenty thousand listens, and it's been just so incredibly gratifying to see her be able to express herself in ways that. I mean, first of all, you actually will love the music. She she's great, but to see her and your own daughter be able to express herself in this way, it's it's um it's an incredible thing. Do you make music yourself? You know, I, I met my wife when she taught me to play guitar. We we were. Uh, she was a freshman at, in college, and I was a, a sophomore, and that's how I got her to spend time with me. <laughs> and, then, and, then I, and then I had her in my hooks. And then I had this whole period where I wrote music, sang, recorded on a drum machine, had knew how to had a little four track player, did a few dates, and it was so bad. It was so completely bad. the The lyrics were like my love song for her was. Um, about how Marxism was dead, but my love for her wasn't. <laughs> it was that bad. <laughs> it's like those health policy valentines that go around on Twitter occasionally. Yeah, so I was trying to put them to music. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's that just wasn't on your work. That's, that's better than I can do. I've, of the many things I'm not good at, my mother refuses to believe there are, uh, that any of them are actual failings of mine. But I once asked my mother, who is just the ultimate in Jewish mother, constant praise, I hung the moon, like everything I write should get a Pulitzer, that kind of thing. I once asked her, uh, am I a good singer? I was probably like 15. And she said, well, it's not your best quality, <laughs> which I cannot tell you the gravity of that <laughs> comment in context. The first time she said um, anything I've always, negative about you your entire life. Yeah, I've 
I've always badly wanted to be able to make uh, to, to make music, but just have no sense of rhythm, no sense of tune. I played guitar poorly for a little bit, uh, and I'd like to pick it back up. But but so I'm very impressed, even if even if you are comparing your love to Marxism. I, on the other hand, have an Indian <laughs> mother who loves me and is great. But when I won, I think it was like a national magazine award or something. Most recently, it was it was, it was some award I was incredibly proud of, and she's on the phone and she says. So does that mean you could win a Nobel Prize someday? Oh, God, you're killing me. Like, it's, it's, it's not enough? <laughs> um, that, that, that is an amazing troll. <laughs> what is the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I think I've ever received was, and I'm violating it right here, is that I talk too much. And if I, in a conversation, can spend more than half the time listening, it will be a better conversation. Who gave you that advice? It was actually a woman who is the head of palliative care at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And part of, in part of being mortal and my research for being mortal, I was trying to understand what I should do differently with my patients and how I would do a better job, especially with those facing end-of-life issues. And the answer was that I needed to understand what their priorities and their goals were rather than just throw facts at them. And when I went into my office, I realized and paid attention to when I spoke to people, I, was, I realized with horror, I was speaking 95% of the time in the clinical visit. I was gathering a little bit of information from them and then giving them a ton of facts that they, I recognized they were now, they weren't ex- absorbing. And I just needed to ask them questions and get and, and hear what they were hearing from me and as I gave them information. But then I realized this was just true in general. I don't know that I'm at below 50% yet in life, but I'm at least a little bit better at getting there. <laughs> so someone who also think probably talks too much and I, I've... Which is a bad sign for journalists, right? We're supposed to interview people. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a terrible <laughs> sign for journalists. <laughs> Have you found it hard to become a better listener or alternatively, if you prefer, have there been any approaches, techniques, ways of thinking that have helped you become a better listener? Incredibly hard. And and if you just say, I want to be a better listener, it doesn't work. And I think the thing that changed it is to go into conversations already thinking ahead of time, what's the question I want to ask? And I recognize it in my, even my journalistic interviews in my research I would see the transcript, and now I notice how much I'm talking in those transcripts. And it's just, it's embarrassing. And going in with a much clearer sense of what are the questions I'm going to ask. So, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting better at that. I'm even in, like, in social life, I come in with a question. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's like practicing being human, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just digress uh, for a second. I, by the time this comes out, it, it again should be out, but I've been working on the Hillary Clinton profile and the the core question of it is how to account for this gap between the person who is described by people who have worked with Hillary Clinton, where they will really speak of her in superlatives in, in a way that is unusual in, in my experience hearing people talk about politicians and then the person who is reflected or evident on the campaign trail. And insofar as talking to many, many, many people who've been around her has given me one answer, it's that Hillary Clinton's core skill is that she is an out-of-this-world good listener. 
and campaigns are built for people who are good at talking. That's interesting. And that has really helped me understand her. And, and doing this work has also just really made me reflect a lot on my own process and approach and sort of gendered ways of communication. But we have this political structure in campaigns that evolved among men who are socialized to be pretty good at standing in front of a room and talking about things confidently, even when they don't know them that well. And well, it's interesting. The, um, yeah. I'd worked for both Al Gore and Hillary Clinton, where I experienced people who were very different in private and in small groups than they were in public on the large stage. And both of them are very funny, very engaged. You know, she really was when it was the campaign trail in 1992. When I met her the first time, she brought out a tin of cookies. And then everybody, you know, that was a few weeks later was when people people thought that the whole idea that she made cookies was a complete um, fiction when, when it wasn't. And the sense of disconnect between the public and the private was pretty striking and stark. But I, I don't know whether it translates that for Al Gore, it was that he he is certainly in, much better at the give and take of conversation. In, and, and that's part of what makes made him... Um, impressive and and you saw his evident intelligence and his ability to think through problems out of conversation very similar when i worked for mrs clinton but i can totally see the sense that she was a really really good listener and i and i still haven't completely figured out what it was about al gore that made him lock up in public i took it to be an extreme form of self-consciousness about his presentation and his appearance and needing to have that controlled. And I suspect there's an element of that for Mrs. Clinton as well. It's an interesting thing to me that we find that to be something that needs explanation. I think here about the Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton comparison a lot, where Joe Biden has this incredible naturalness in front of a 30,000 person crowd or speaking on national television. I mean, he just does not appear to have filter. And we look at that and we say, He's authentic. He's at ease. He seems like us. And then we see someone who goes on in those same contexts and seems controlled, careful, a little bit afraid, very conscious that they could say the wrong thing. It could come back to haunt them. And we say they seem artificial. They seem calculated. They seem like they're, they're not being straight with us. And what's so interesting to me about that is that the latter reaction is so much more ordinary and human that there's something very unusual about someone who can act with such comfort in front of a gigantic room full of strangers. And we have somehow managed to flip the valence of it such that a mode of acting that is itself a tremendous act, a very, very strange politician affectation or quality somehow denotes people who don't act like politicians. Whereas the people who act like most of us would in these contexts, which is like terrified <laughs> on some level, um, we become suspicious of them. Uh, this is That's the part of it I can't figure out. It doesn't seem to need a lot of explanation, and yet it does, and, and I feel it does myself as well. I mean, it's not that I have a different intuitive reaction to it than other people, but I have a lot of trouble understanding where my intuitive reaction comes from. Well, I'd, I'd push on the idea, though, that there's something wrong with the public expectation. Leaders are needing to do something different from ordinary life. And that is to 
harness people to pull in the same direction. And that means needing to be able to communicate the direction that you want them to pull and why. And to do that for millions of people means having to find ways to connect with them over and over and over again about those kinds of messages. That means being crystal clear about what the priorities are, why they're the priorities, and then where you got to go with those priorities. And part of decision-making, part of that world of politics is all of the internal discussion and all of your private decision-making and how you come to decision about what those priorities are and what actions you want to take. But a big part of it is also that being a leader in politics in almost any system in the in the world is, you know, except maybe in a parliamentary system, you have to harness people's will to come with you. That's a fundamental part of your power. And if you can't harness that power, you're doomed. You're completely doomed. And so... I don't know that we always need to feel that these people are like us. You know, Winston Churchill was never like anybody. <laughs> he would say something like, I'm paraphrasing now, you know, people don't like me because, because I'm an ordinary human being. People like me because I'm an extraordinary human being. <laughs> and he, um, he, but he could do that, right? He could bring the force of his particular character in a public mode that could harness people towards what the priorities were and pulling in the same direction with him. And that's so fundamentally important in order to help people think that something's even an option that you hadn't thought about and then to want to want to go with you. I don't, I don't disagree with that at all, actually. I think that you're completely right to say that public communication is a very important part of the job. It's more the way we have a tendency to take styles of public communication and even weaknesses of public communication or strengths and view them as windows into the authentic soul. That's the part that I find interesting and the, and the part I find unusual. I think it's one thing to say so-and-so is stiff in front of a crowd and that will make them less effective. And that is the problem with that. And it's another to say so-and-so is stiff in front of the crowd and that shows that they're holding something back, that there's something fundamentally untrustworthy about them. There, there, there's something weird to me about the way we personalize it. But aren't you but reading your broader people, point is correct. Aren't you reading people all the time though when you're deciding whether to buy something from someone who's trying to get you to buy something at the store or get, getting you to do something you weren't thinking about doing? Aren't you reading their motives all the time? And how do you read the introvert or how do you read the person who isn't a natural on the stage, they still have to find, I mean, this was when I was working for Al Gore and, and Jim Cooper and, and, and Bill Clinton, I, I was trying to understand, like, how are they connecting and managing to do it? And, and at the end of the day, um, uh, I couldn't find an answer because it really came out of, they'd found ways to l align what was natural about their personality with, um, their public presentation. And, bring some part of themselves, you know, not their whole selves, not completely their authentic selves, but, but bring their themselves into their ability to communicate and, and pull people in the direction they were trying to get them to go. And having the right answer was just never enough. And being able to cut the right deal wasn't with the powers that be, wasn't always enough, wasn't very often enough. The thing is, is it a good idea that we have a system that makes it so we have so many checks on your power in the United States that is very hard to pull in any direction at all. It takes a Herculean effort to achieve major policy change 
and it's still unlikely to happen. And so maybe we need a system that requires a little less pulling to get it over the hump and all of those things. I, I can imagine the ways that you structurally make it happen. But I do think we're forced into trying to get people to be pretty perfect at that kind of communication task because of how fundamentally important it is. And then the communication is it's coming out of who you are. And people don't change unless they they believe you. It's a really hard, hard chemical thing. <laughs> What is something you believe is true that most people believe is false? Well, I think it ties into this whole idea that systems are more interesting and powerful than the components um, or that, you know, how that functions may be more important than how the individuals function. That at the end of the day, if we have a system that depends so excruciatingly painfully on how well... Hillary Clinton can connect with you and and the whole country, then that's partly a, if our whole history is dependent on that rare talent and ability to have everybody pulled together, that makes me wonder about the system components that make us dependent that way. And, you know, so I think the thing that I believe that others don't necessarily is that, that we fail all the time, that the reasons we're successful are because we set up systems that allow us to fail, learn, get up, and move on, and that we're insufficiently forgiving of those kinds of failures. When you say it that way, people say, yeah, 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 I believe it. But you look at their actions. You look at the way we, the expectation of perfection that we apply. You know, I certainly see it every day as a doctor, and the urge to say, that I'm perfect, that nothing will go wrong, that, you know, that we completely know what we're doing and that, that everything goes smoothly. It's, it's just not true. And, uh, and yet you're better off. You are still better off going with me and our team and, and doing what needs to be done. And people want to believe that there is that perfection, there is that infallibility, and it's a, it's a blinder. It's a, it's a problem. And and finally, what are three books you've read that have influenced you, that have mattered to you, that you think that you would recommend to the audience? Well, thank goodness you told me that one in advance because I scrambled on, <laughs> the, on the three albums one. I'm going to give you three books by doctors. <laughs> um, okay. One I didn't know was by a doctor when I started reading it as a kid, but I, but but it's totally absorbed me, which is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. The, the detective work has been incredibly influential to me in the way I write and the way I think in the sense of how ideas can have drama. And I've been drawn to those kinds of stories ever since. It probably started with Encyclopedia Brown, actually, and then it went to Sherlock Holmes, but whatever. Number two is Oliver Sacks and uh, the man who mistook his wife for hat. I mean, it just was this amazing sense of how close you could get to human beings and how flawed human beings could be and the ways in which they could, their brains worked. And, and it, it just had this explosive sense of expanding my view of people. And then Abraham Verghese wrote a book in 1994 called My Own Country about he, he was an immigrant from Ethiopia, Indian, Indian heritage, who was a, became an infectious disease doctor in a small town, Johnson City, Tennessee, and was there when the HIV epidemic broke out. And it's this unbelievable story. But, I, but the reason that was so influential for me was... He wasn't that much older than I 
was. And he was an Indian American, and he was writing in ways that Oliver Sacks was and applying it in his own world and in ways that had the detective story of Sherlock Holmes. And, and it made me think, geez, maybe I could do this. And so when Jake Weisberg knocked on my email door saying, you know, would you try writing this thing for this internet magazine he started? I said, sure. And I don't think I would have if I hadn't had that sense that that might be in the realm of possibility for somebody like me that that Abe Freguese opened up. That's such an important point. I only began writing, doing political writing, because I read some other young guy writing about politics on the internet. And it was the first time I'd read anybody write about politics the way I spoke. And so all of a sudden it became imaginable to me yeah. that I could write about politics as a college student, not even professionally, just do it at all. Just prior to that, the language was so formal. It was like George Will English. And I didn't write in George Will English. So obviously I was not the kind of person who wrote about politics. And I always think about that whenever I see these debates about representation in culture and media and film and panels and, and all of this. And, you know, when it, when people underestimate it and, and the importance in house people, I always think about how much, you know, I'm a I'm a white man. There wasn't much that the culture didn't tell me I could do. But even for me, that kind of representation was really important in just making me think something was possible that I had not previously seen as a pursuit that people like me did. Yeah, I think the understanding why your your imagination changes about what you might or might not be able to do it helped that he was my age. It helped that he was an American, all, all of those things. And yet I would, you know, I'd have, I'd have been embarrassed to say that was what was key for me to imagine myself doing that work. You know, in other realms, I've readily looked to and taken ideas and felt empowered by people from many, many walks of life. And yet you end up having some thread of connection to people that can lead you to think, oh, yeah. I can play guitar like that, or I can sing. You have to have some way that you feel you have the confidence that you can. It's this leap of faith without evidence, right? How do I have the belief that I would get through surgery training, spend the eight years and, and have it go? There were enough people along the way that I would meet and think, yeah, you know, they're not so great. I can probably, if they can do that, can I do that? Yeah, sure. And you imagine yourself somewhere along the way. A lot of times it's that when it's from afar, you have these little connections because you say, oh, they, you know, they, they, have, they, they came from the same background as me. Up close, one of the secrets of medical school is you do these rotations and you meet all kinds of people. And as you get to know them, you like them. And the fact that somebody you like, which means you also have a feeling like they're an ordinary human being, someone you like is doing something that you find pretty cool, you start imagining that, well, maybe I could do that. And that's the big secret of rotations and the things you go through in medical school is the biggest reasons people choose their fields is they meet people that, that they like and end up wanting to go into that field. All right. I'm going to go listen to some house by Hunter Gawande. Uh, Atul Gawande, thank you very much. Uh, this was great. I really appreciate the time you spent. This was awesome. Thank you. Hi, Weeds listeners. I'm back, still in the studio by myself. Um, hope you have enjoyed the interview, enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you so much to our producer, Afim Shapiro, also the producer of The Ezra Klein Show, AC Valdez. And we will be back uh, next week with more traditional Weeds. 